0: Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc online.org. Now, here's Pastor Sean. The audience that's watching, we're glad that you have chosen to be with us. This morning, Luke chapter 2. You know, growing up as a pastor's kid, we had a lot of funny stories of things that happened at church. And when I was in fourth grade, and when my younger brother was in second grade, it was a normal Sunday morning like this. And it got to be the end of church, and, and my dad was an associate pastor at the time. And, and pastors have to stay afterwards to talk and to visit, and we're usually one of the last ones to leave. And so um, my, my mom would always take us home after church. And so um, I got home with my mom, and she started cooking dinner. And my dad walked in the door, and my dad said, Well, where's Scott, my younger brother? And my wife, or my, my mom said, Well, I thought Scott was with you. No, Scott came home with you. No, Scott came home with you. Where's Scott? So in a panic, my dad drove back to church, and he walked into the sanctuary, and all the lights were turned off, and he heard the snoring noise, and my little brother, Scott, had fallen asleep in church, and we just left him there, and it was dark in the sanctuary, and so my mom went home thinking that Scott was with her, or with my, my dad, and my dad went home thinking that Scott was with my mom, and so it was a funny story we talk about to this day of my little brother falling asleep in church and being left at church, and so as a parent, there's that, that moment of sheer panic when you don't quite know where your child is. Uh, when Aiden, our oldest son, was about two or three years old, this was back when we lived in Colorado Springs, and back when, when they still had Mervin's, I don't if Mervin's department store, so we went to Mervin's, and um, it was that one of those moments where Dawn wasn't sure where Aiden was, and I wasn't sure where Aiden was, and it's the same thing. Isn't he with you? No. Isn't he with you? No. Where's Aiden? So we like feverishly ran around Mervyn's trying to find out where our two-year-old son was, and so he was in front of the sunglasses displays there with these big sunglasses on, looking in the mirror, you know, trying on sunglasses, and so this lady kept him there and said, I'm, I'm assuming you're his parents, and of course, as a dad, I was mad at first. Why did you run away, Aiden? And then you can't be mad after long for a little two-year-old there looking up with you with these cool sunglasses. So you just kind of hug your son and you're like, okay, I, I found you. But it's a parent's worst nightmare to have your child either be kidnapped or lose your child in a crowd or, or, or misplace your child in a mall. It's probably happened to, to some of you before, that moment of panic where, where is my child? Well, this same panic came true for Mary and Joseph when they quote-unquote lost Jesus on their way back to Nazareth from the Passover in Jerusalem. So last week, we saw these two wonderful people, Simeon and Anna, these two older Jewish people who were waiting for their promised Messiah. And Simeon couldn't die until he had seen and held Jesus in his arms and Anna was living in the temple, and she was praying and fasting. And so it was a, a wonderful scene last week. <clears throat> but now we come to what I find is fascinating in Luke chapter 2 because it's material that's only in Luke's gospel. It's not in any of the other gospels. You've got this episode where Jesus is a 12-year-old boy in the temple. You know, the other gospels really start with his public ministry at the age of 30. Where he comes on to the scene. And so we get a glimpse here of Jesus as a young boy. So let's read together, excuse me, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 40 and go through verse 52. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You look at verse 40 and you look at verse 52 and their bookends to this episode. They basically say the same thing. Jesus grew physically. Jesus grew Mentally, Jesus grew intellectually, Jesus grew spiritually. Now, it's a little difficult for us to fully wrap our minds around Jesus coming in the flesh, being both fully God and fully man. Having two natures, a human nature and a divine nature in in the one person. We can't quite wrap our minds around it. But the Bible teaches that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And Jesus was a baby just like you and me. So contrary to popular opinion, Jesus had to learn to crawl. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to read. He had to learn to write. These were limitations that he had as a human. And so when it says here that Jesus grew in stature, it meant that he just grew up. He grew up physically. But we also know that it says he grew in wisdom. In other words, his mind had to develop the way our minds developed. He had to learn the Bible. He had to read. He had to grow. Now, we don't fully understand all of this because of the the human limitations that we have. But the one thing that we do know about Jesus is that he did this all without being hampered by sin. He never once sinned in thought, word, or deed. So when he grew, there was no sin in his growing. Hebrews 4.15 says, "...we do not have a high priest talking about Jesus." who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus grew physically. Jesus grew emotionally and mentally and spiritually, yet without sin. And so with verse 40 and verse 52 as a bookend, Luke gives us the details of how Jesus grew in this way. And so let's just explore this passage of Scripture. It says that, in verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Now, why did they go every year to the Passover? Well, it was a, an obligation. If you were a good Jewish male, you had to take your family to Jerusalem for the three feasts. You had to go for Passover, you had to go for Pentecost, and you had to go for the Feast of Tabernacles. And you had to do that every year. And so Joseph, being the good Jewish man that he is, is taking his family to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. But notice that Jesus is 12 years old. What's the significance of being 12? We kind of have it in our Jewish cultures today. It's called the Bar Mitzvah. When When a Jewish boy reaches the age of 12, he goes through what's called Bar Mitzvah. It means son of the commandment. It means that when you turn 12, you are now part of the faith community of Israel. You've basically become a man that's responsible. And so Jesus here is 12 years old, and he is a young man who's now basically considered almost like an adult in the Jewish context. But we also need to understand how families traveled back in those days, in those ancient days. Okay, so when you go on a road trip... You pack your family in the minivan or the SUV, and it's usually just your family, and you travel across country. Sometimes, if you're daring enough, you take another family with you, and you travel with another family. But usually, it's just you or maybe one other family. Back in those days, they traveled as a caravan, as a caravan. And usually, what would happen is the the, the women and the children would travel ahead, and they would be separated from the men. The men would travel behind them and then kind of catch up with the rest of the group in the evening. So here's probably what happens. Mary probably thinks that because Jesus is 12, he's back traveling with the men because it's his bar mitzvah, and he's, he's a man now. And Joseph's probably thinking, well, the kids always travel with the women, so Jesus is up with Mary, the caravan. And so they get on their way, and then they have that moment of truth where they panic and realize, just like my parents did, do you have Jesus? No, I thought Jesus was with you. No, I thought Jesus was with you. Where's Jesus? And so they panic and they go back to Jerusalem to find out where he is. And so as they rush back to Jerusalem, where's Jesus? Where's he at? Well, notice what it says there. Verse 45, when they did not find him, They returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple. He's in the temple. Now, we've seen the importance of the temple so far in Luke's gospel. Where did Gabriel appear to Zechariah? In the Holy of Holies in the temple. Simon blessed Jesus last week in the temple. Anna lived in the temple, praying and fasting. Jesus is here learning in the temple, in God's house. And and the ironic thing is, the temple is not necessarily a physical structure. The Bible tells us Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the dwelling place of God. And so he's a 12-year-old boy with exceptional knowledge of the Bible, and he's holding his own with these older, learned men. So look at what it says there. Verse 47. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answer. Really, in the original language, means they were blown away with his knowledge. They were amazed at the way he was answering questions, asking questions, the the way Jesus understood the scriptures. But then notice the response of his parents. Luke uses a different Greek word in verse 48. It says there in verse 48... And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Astonished is a different word. It means they were exasperated. They were upset. They were angry. And you can imagine how Mary is probably very frustrated with her son. She's been worried sick. They don't know where Jesus is. They're probably out of breath for running around looking for him. They finally find him. And what does Mary say to him? What does Mary say to him? Well, you see it there. In verse um, 48, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Son, it's not young man. The way it's used there is little child. <laughs> He's 12, but Mary's like, little child, you've caused some great problems for your father and I. We've been searching all over. We've been looking high and low for you, Jesus. Where have you been? You've caused us great distress. Distress. We're angry at you, Jesus. We're frustrated. We're exasperated. We've been panic-stricken. Where have you been? Why are you here? And then, in verse 49, interestingly, verse 49 records the very first words out of Jesus' mouth. The very first words Jesus ever says as a 12-year-old boy. Now, the other Gospels have him speaking as an adult in his public ministry, but here we have Jesus speaking as a 12-year-old boy, and what he says is astonishing. Notice what he says in verse 49, he said to them, first words out of Jesus' mouth, why? Well, the first words out of Jesus, I, I take that back, the first words out of Jesus' mouth are probably like crying, okay? So, I mean, Luke doesn't record that, but these are the actual words of Jesus that were intelligent words, okay? Not as like a baby cooing. All right, here we go. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house. As a 12-year-old boy, Jesus knew exactly who he was and exactly what his mission was. Now, he's not being disrespectful to his parents here. He's not being, he's not rebuking them. He's just telling them a profound truth about who he is. What does Jesus say? I must be in my father's house. This is where I need to be right now at this time and this place. Now, the translation is a little bit interesting. Some of your Bibles may say, I must be about my father's business. You can take it both ways. I must be in my father's house, i.e. I need to be in the temple right now studying with these men, or I must be about my father's business, meaning I'm on a mission from my father, and this is what he's called me to do right here and right now. But notice that for Jesus, it's a must. I must do this. Now, this passage of Scripture gives for us some significant things about Jesus being fully God and fully man, as a young boy. It's really fascinating. So what I want us to do is let's just explore three truths from this passage that tell us about Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. You often don't hear about Jesus as a, as a young man or a young boy. So let's look at these things this morning. Here's the first. Jesus was passionate about learning the scriptures. Jesus was passionate about learning the scriptures. Now remember, he's still growing in wisdom. He's still developing intellectually. He's developing spiritually. Notice what he's doing there in verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers. And what's he doing? He's listening to them and he's asking them questions. Now, that's the way they did learning back in that ancient world disputations, dialogue. You learn by asking questions. So the rabbis would ask you questions and you would answer. You would ask your rabbi questions and they would answer. It was a give and take. So Jesus is learning from these men because he's asking them questions. And then he, in turn, is answering those questions. These men were learned in the scriptures. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is desiring to grow in his understanding of the Bible. And they were amazed. They were blown away at his knowledge, verse 47. Why would Jesus be listening to the rabbis if he didn't want to learn from their expertise and knowledge? So even as a young boy, where's Jesus? He's quote-unquote in church learning from the experts about God's word. He has a passion for the scriptures. He has a passion for studying the Bible as a 12-year-old boy. He wants to learn as much as he can about God. Second thing we see here, and this is interesting that as a 12-year-old boy, Jesus has this self-awareness. He has this self-knowledge. He has this understanding of who he is and what his mission is. So second here, Jesus was obligated to do his Father's will. Now, why do I use the word obligated? That sounds like it's a negative word. Jesus was obligated to do his Father's will. Well, look at the text. What does Jesus say there? Verse 49, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must? You may want to underline that word, I must be in my Father's house. In other words, this is something I must do. It's a divine obligation. I can be nowhere else than to be right here. It's a must for me. I've got to do this. I'm joyfully submitting to the Father's will by doing this, being in my Father's house. Now, this submission or obedience to the Father's will marked all of Jesus' ministry. As a matter of fact, if he wasn't obedient to the Father's will, he would not be qualified to go to the cross and die for us. But listen to, especially the way the Gospel John, listen to the words of Jesus and how he relates to doing his Father's will. John 4.34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What's Jesus' mission? To do the will of the Father. John six thirty eight. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. Why did Jesus come to do God's will? It's his his food. It's his sustenance to do God's will. And then in John eight twenty nine. And he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I always do what's pleasing to my Father. I always obey the Father's will. So Jesus says, I must be here. And you can take it both ways. I must be here in God's house learning from my Father. Or you could take it, I must be about my Father's business. I need to be about my Father's mission. I need to be doing my Father's will. But I don't know if you caught this because this would have shocked the rabbis. What does Jesus say? I must be about my father's business, my father's house. We we look at that and think, well, that's not a big deal. Do you realize that nobody in the Old Testament ever called God their father? Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah, all the great men in the Old Testament, you would never dare call Yahweh your father. It's blasphemous. But what does Jesus say? He's my father. It's coming out of the mouth of Jesus. No mere human being would ever call God my father. So Jesus, as a 12-year-old boy, understands God is my father because I'm the son of God. And I'm here to complete my mission that God has sent me. And it's interesting. Jesus' mission sometimes puts him at odds with his own family the will of his father is sometimes more important than what his mom and dad want him to do. And we'll come back to that in a moment. So in the flesh, Jesus knew as a 12-year-old boy, which is amazing, that his mission was to come to earth to do the will of the father, to be about his father's business, and his parents and others didn't quite fully understand what he was doing. So as a young man, Jesus, number one, had a passion for the Bible. Number two, he had a passion to follow his Father's will. It's very interesting the way Luke describes this. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of Luke reflect Jesus' relationship with my Father. The very last words out of Jesus' mouth, the very last verse in Luke Luke 24, 49, when he's telling his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit, what does he say? Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Jesus had this keen awareness as a 12-year-old boy that he was serving his Father. So number one, Jesus had a passion to learn the Scriptures. Number two, Jesus joyfully was obligated to submit to his Father's will. But here's the third thing. Jesus was submissive to his earthly parents. We can't miss this. If anybody had a right to tell his parents, hey, listen, I know what's going on because I'm God. Leave me alone. Jesus didn't do that. Notice what it says. Verse 50, they did not understand the saying that he spoke. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. Remember, they're in Jerusalem. They came to Nazareth, and he was what? What does your Bible say? He was submissive to them. That's the strongest word in the Greek language that Luke could have used for submissive. It really means he subordinated himself to his parents' authority. And also the way it's worded in the original language, it wasn't just a one time, I'm being submissive. The way that Luke uses it, it's it's a habitual lifestyle of Jesus. He was always, through his entire youth, being submissive or obedient to his parents. So Jesus as a young boy, fully aware of who he was as the son of God, had a passion for the Bible, had a passion for God's will, and was submissive to his parents. Never once sinned. Think about this. As a 12-year-old boy, he never once sinned in thought, in word, or in deed. If Jesus had sinned at any point in time, even as a 12-year-old boy, all the way up to the cross, if he had ever sinned, he would not be qualified to die on the cross for us because he would not be the perfect, sinless son of God. But Jesus never once sinned. Here's the point. We need to put our trust in Jesus as our perfect Savior who never once sinned. Why do we need to put our trust in Jesus? Because he only has the power to forgive us of our sins because he lived the perfect life that we can never live and he died the death that we should have deserved to die. First Peter 1 Peter 1:18 through 18-19. Peter says, Knowing that you were ransomed or bought, that's what the word ransom means, knowing you were bought or purchased from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers, Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. So you weren't bought with silver or gold. What were you bought with? Verse 19, you were bought with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, when you trust Jesus for salvation, the perfect sinless Jesus, you are adopted into the family and you too can now say, God is my father. Because not only is he Jesus Father, but because you've trusted in Christ alone, you can say, My Father. So Jesus is our Savior who forgives us of our sins, but He's also our example. He's our example of how we are to live. So, if you are a Christ follower, let's ask a question. How do you follow Christ's example? How do you live like Jesus. Now, you're not going to be perfect. You're not going to be sinless, but we're called to follow the model of Jesus. So, let me just ask you three questions. And these are three questions based upon what we just saw about Jesus. So, this is, this is no longer talking about what Jesus did. I'm talking about you personally and how you follow Jesus. So, let me ask you these questions. So, here's the first question. Are you growing in your passion to learn the Bible like Jesus did? If Jesus was passionate about learning the scriptures, how about you? Are you growing in your passion to learn the Bible like Jesus did? You know, is this a a stale, dusty old book that you just kind of bring to church and you never read it the rest of the week? Is the Bible become like kind of cold to you? It's distant. Do you desire to go deeper into God's word? Are you growing like Jesus in the wisdom and knowledge of God's word? Let me read to you Psalm 119, 9 through 16. And I want you to think about all the terms that the psalmist uses to describe his attitude toward God's word. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. What does the psalmist say? I'm going to store your word in my heart. I'm going to delight in your word. I'm going to take joy in your word. I'm going to meditate on your word. I'm going to fix my eyes on your word. I'm not going to forget your word. Is that your attitude toward the Bible? Do you store it up? Do you meditate? Do you read it? Do you study it? Do you have a passion to go deeper in this word the way Jesus did? Do you have a desire to learn from those that are experts in the scriptures like Jesus did? This was read earlier in our call to worship. But let me read it again. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. So that's the first question to ask yourself. Like Jesus, do you have a passion to grow in your knowledge of the word of God? Okay, second question are you seeking to obey the father's will like jesus did jesus knew as a 12 year old boy at that moment in time the most important thing for him was his relationship with his father nothing else mattered I must be with my Father, in my Father's house, about the business of my Father, doing the Father's will. Everything else pales in comparison to the will of my Father. And Jesus knew that his relationship to his Heavenly Father may cause issues with his earthly parents. Do you realize that when you trust Jesus for salvation, You are forsaking all other allegiances. And you're saying that your loves, your ambitions, your desires, your plans, your priorities, all those things come in second under Jesus as your Lord of all. If you're going to be about the Father's will, you must say, like Jesus Everything else needs to be put aside for this moment in time because right now, it's about my father. And that may cause some issues with your family. Jesus even said it later on in Luke 14. Luke 14, 26 through 27. Now, we have to understand Jesus' words here. He's not being literal. He's being hyperbolic. He's exaggerating. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus telling us literally you gotta hate your wife, hate your children? That's not what he's saying. He's using exaggerated language to say that every other human relationship comes second to the relationship with Jesus. And if you're going to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you're going to submit yourself to the Father's will, you've got to have that mindset where you say, everything else is second to the preeminence of Christ as my Lord. And it may cause some conflict in your family. Is your chief desire to, like Jesus, I must be about my Father's business. I must do the will of my Father. I must glorify my Father. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do all to the glory of God. Are you doing everything to the glory of God? 2 Corinthians 5.9 So whether we are at home or away we make it our aim to please Him. Our aim is to please the Father. In Colossians 3.17 And whatever you do In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So first question, are you having a passion to grow in your knowledge of the Bible like Jesus did? Second question, are you desiring to obey the Father like Jesus did? Third question, are you submitting to earthly authorities like Jesus? Jesus did. Jesus obeyed his parents. Okay. For the next few minutes, I'm going to be talking to youth and teenagers. So adults, you can kind of listen to me, but I'm going to talk to teenagers and and youth and children. Let me speak to you directly. What does the Bible say about obedience to parents? Ephesians 6, 1 through 3 says this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord For this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Children, obey. And that word obey means ongoing as a lifestyle, that you are to continually be obeying your parents. Whether you like it or not, whether it's convenient or not, it's to be a consistent, comprehensive, I'm going to obey my parents parents it literally means to listen under you are to that's what the word means to listen under i'm going to listen under the authority of my parents i'm going to listen to my parents cuz my parents know what they're talking about Con- teenagers i know sometimes you don't think that my parents have no idea what they're talking about they really do listen to your parents okay colossians 320 children obey your parents in everything Say what, Pastor Sean? Let me read it again. I didn't stutter. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Children, obey your parents in everything. When your parents tell you to do your homework, when they tell you to pick up your toys, Clean your room, get off the computer, get off the phone, come home at a certain time, take out the trash. Whatever it is, you are to obey them in everything with one rare exception. This probably won't ever happen. Now let me give you the exception because like kids, I want to get the exception clause here. What, what is it, Pastor Sean? Okay, here it is. If your parents ask you to do something immoral, illegal, unethical, or sinful, or criminal, you can say no. But I guarantee you probably 99.9% of the time, they're not going to ask you to do something like that. So obey. Obey your parents in everything. But notice what else Paul says there. He says honor. Now what's the difference between honor and obeying? Why does he say obey and honor? Let me give you the difference. Obey means to do what they say. Honor means to do it with the right attitude. You can obey your parents' children and have a really bad attitude in your heart and mind when they're asking you to do something. You can talk behind their backs. You can cuss at them under your breath. You can be really, really negative in your attitude. Honor means to give your parents the proper respect and value that they deserve. You don't speak evil behind their backs. You don't complain. You don't backtalk. Here's one thing I don't hear a lot. When I was growing up, this is just me. I'm not trying to be legalistic here, parents, but let me just say this. When I was growing up, if my mom or dad asked me to do something... I had to say, yes, ma'am, or yes, sir, with no exceptions. Now, sometimes I had a bad attitude. So you obey your parents in everything, and you do it by honoring them with the right attitude. So this concept of submitting to earthly authorities is not just for children. So children, obey your parents, honor your parents. But do you realize this concept of submitting to authorities goes for all areas of life? Okay, every single one of us has somebody that we submit to. You have a boss. You have a supervisor. You have a job. Do you submit to your employer? Do you submit to the governing authorities? This is a tough one. I'm going to just throw it out there, but we can talk about it later. Wives, do you joyfully submit to your husbands? Church members, do you joyfully submit to the spiritual leaders of the church? Jesus was submissive to the earthly authorities that God had given him. And in our culture today, this is sorely lacking. It's not a value that our culture really holds on to is submitting to authority or respecting authority. What do we see going on in our world right now? Cities are getting burned down. Vandalism. Murder and mayhem and acts of violence and looting and rioting. There's no respect for authority. And sadly, the authorities that God has placed in some of these in some of these cities, aren't exercising their authority in the right way. So we're seeing a culture of lawlessness all around us. And Paul warned us in Romans 1, 29 through 31. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Paul, tell us what you really think about what's going on today. Now, sometimes in a message like this, a pastor can say, okay, follow Jesus' example. Be passionate about the Bible, be passionate about God's will, and obey your parents. And just go out there and do it. And some of you are thinking, okay, he's given me the checklist. I can go do it in my own power. Some of you are thinking, he's given me the checklist, and I feel defeated already because I know I can't do this. So let me give you some gospel hope this morning. When you trust Jesus Christ for salvation... He gives you the Holy Spirit to come live inside you, to give you the power and the desire and the grace to carry these things out. So how can you have a passion for God's word? Only because the Holy Spirit in you gives you that passion. You don't muster it up yourself. How can you faithfully obey God's will? It's not within you to do that. The Holy Spirit gives you that desire. He gives you that power. Children, how can you obey your parents? Because it goes against your your nature. Only because the Holy Spirit is in you, giving you that power to do that. Philippians 2, 12-13. Therefore, my beloved... As you've always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is working in you to give you the power to be able to do this. You know, we've gotten off track with a little cute saying that happened a few years ago that people had bracelets and and people put bumper stickers. It was, what would Jesus do? Now, I'm not busting on that or complaining about that, but oftentimes, what would Jesus do and what do we think? I've got to do what Jesus did, and I can do it in my own power. Okay. First of all, what did Jesus do? He died on the cross. What did Jesus do? He sent his Holy Spirit to live in you. So yes, we follow Jesus as our example, but the first thing is not what would Jesus do, it's what has he done in his death, burial, and resurrection in the Holy Spirit to give me the power to follow through with what he's called me to do. Sometimes we leave the Holy Spirit entirely out of the equation. A pastor will stand up here and say, children, obey your parents. Wives, submit to your husbands. Read your Bible more. Obey God's will. Go do it. And we never give you the the hope that there's the power of the Holy Spirit that gives you the the grace to be able to do that. Listen to 2 Peter uh, 1.3. His divine power has granted to us all things that be pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us for his own glory and excellence. Jesus' power has given you everything you need. God is working in you. So when you find it very difficult to follow commands in the Bible, so I've given you three commands, haven't I? Read your Bible more, obey God's word more, and, and, and obey your earthly authorities more, okay? If I give you commands and the Bible gives you commands, you need to remember some things couple things to remember. Number one, Jesus came and identified with everything you're going through, was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. He lived the perfect life that you never could live. He perfectly obeyed, and he died on the cross. And when you're connected to him, his record becomes your record, and you're accepted before God because of Jesus. But number two, remember that he's never left you alone. He gives you the Holy Spirit to live inside you to give you the power to carry through with these commands. We're never left alone. Don't ever think you're alone. Jesus is seated in the heavenlies right now at the right hand of God. And Jesus is praying for you. He's interceding for you. He's equipping you. He's on your side. And plus, you're never alone because not only is Jesus in heaven rooting for you, but he sent his Holy Spirit to live in you, to give you the power to live the Christian life by his grace. You're never alone. So, Jesus is our example, yes. What would Jesus do? Example, yes. But more importantly, he's our Savior. What did Jesus do? He died and rose again and sent the Holy Spirit to live in us, to give us the power to be able to live the Christian life. So this week, would you trust in Jesus as your perfect, sinless Savior? And this week, would you rely on the power of God? the Holy Spirit in you. So that as you trust Jesus and you rely on the Holy Spirit, this week, as you walk out of this place, you can live a life that says, just like Jesus did, this week, I must be about my Father's business. I must be with my Father. I always do what pleases the Father. I'm going to glorify Him in everything I do. How can you live a life that glorifies Jesus? You trust in Him, and you rely upon the Holy Spirit. You don't trust in yourself, and you don't rely upon yourself. You look to Jesus, and you rely upon the Holy Spirit. And as you fix your eyes on Jesus, and you rely on the Holy Spirit, you can walk out of this place, and you can successfully be about your father's business, because the Lord has given you the grace and the strength to be able to do it. For his glory alone. And when you fail, you can always run back to the Father who's forgiven you through the cross of Jesus. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning and to evaluate your life and ask these three questions as we think about the Word of God Do you have a passion for God's Word like Jesus did? Are you obeying the will of the Father like Jesus did? And are you submitting to the earthly authorities that God has placed in your life like Jesus did? Let's spend a few moments in silent prayer as we think about these things. We need your grace, and we're so thankful that you never leave us alone, that you've sent Jesus to die for us and rise again for us. Jesus, you've sent the Holy Spirit to live within us, so we're never alone. Lord, my prayer is that through trusting in you and relying upon you, this week, we would be about our Father's business. We would have a passion to grow in our knowledge of the Word. We would have a desire to obey the Father's will. Lord, I pray for children and youth that are in this room that they would have the power to submit and obey their parents. Lord, we all need strength. We all need grace. Grace. Thank you that you've never left us alone. Jesus, I'm so amazed. I'm thankful that even as a 12-year-old boy, you knew exactly who you were and what your mission was. There was no confusion, even as a 12-year-old boy. Thank you that you fulfilled all righteousness and never once sinned so that you could die on the cross for us as a perfect, sinless Savior and rise again that we might have new life. Give us encouragement and hope as we leave this place. Let us make it our aim to always do the things that please the Father. And let us keep our eyes on Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.